This Someday is Here series is sponsored by Denver Seminary. I love Denver Seminary and am currently enrolled as a student. I'm constantly blown away by the integrity and humility and commitment to excellence that I've experienced from the faculty, the staff, and just to have met students from all walks of life. You'll hear more about Denver Seminary later in the show, but if you want to go ahead and check out their degree programs, visit denverseminary.edu slash Vivian, V-I-V-I-A-N. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Someday Is Here. I am your host, Vivian Mabuni, and I just want to say happy AAPI Heritage Month. Uh, In the month of May, we are doing something special here on the podcast, and we are going to take the next five weeks to explore adoption. Um, One of my passions is to really help bring more education, understanding, and just really highlight and center Asian American adoptees and their stories. Uh, But I've also brought together a group of um, adoptive parents, adoptive moms that I trust that have done, in my opinion, a good job of really walking the adoption process and journey with their kids. So my hope is that this series would be beneficial for those of us who love uh, adoptees, transracial adoptees, transcultural adoptees, uh, who are adoptees or who are raising kids of Asian descent. Um, I'm excited really to bring to you some really great voices uh, from a wide spectrum of experiences and to really um, hit the different parts of the adoption triad, um, the first families, the adoptees, and the adoptive families as well. So enjoy these next five weeks. I can't wait to dive into this very important topic, and I'm so glad that you're here for the journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Some Days Here podcast. This has been a really incredible series that we've been doing on adoption. And I've loved being able to interview people from the various parts of the triad, of the adoption triad, and just people that I uh, respect and either know personally or um, know of. And today's guest is a woman that I know of. We've been connected on social media, but I finally get to have a conversation with the amazing Brandy Ebersol. This is uh, who a little bit more about her. Brandy is a transnational, transracial Korean adoptee. She's also an adoptive mama, a former foster mama, you know, just a mama. (laughs) Brandy lives on the North Shore of Boston, and she loves people, strong coffee, I'm liking that, um, books, and the mystical Jesus. She feels the weight of balancing so many hats with her partner, Daniel. The two of them own a photography business together, and a lot of their days are spent capturing love behind their lenses. They also have four incredible kids. Two children are also transracial adoptees, and the others currently Brandy's only known blood relative. Brandy is passionate about identity building, racial awareness, and creating a better soil for adoptees to grow up in. Honesty and openness always. Brandy is an adoptee advocate. Her best work is done writing for various parenting and adoption-focused blogs, consulting with adoptive and prospective parents, churches, and mentoring adoptee youth. 
So we'll talk more about all that, but I am just so thrilled you can see why Brandy's the perfect guest to have on this series. So welcome, Brandy, to Some Days Here. Thank you. It's so fun to meet you and to get to um, spend this time chatting. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of mutual friends, so I feel like, yeah. you know, we were meant to be friends. So I'm really glad that we have some time to to hear yeah. more of each other's story. So Brandy, for our listeners, would you share with us a little of your your ethnic journey and your adoption journey? Yeah. Well, I wanted to start out with the gate and just say, as an adoptee that didn't grow up with a ton of racial mirrors, it is an honor to sit across a screen and um, look at someone that shares some of my features. It's always a um, almost like an emotional thing for me where I'm like, it brings about this like comfort um, that I didn't know I needed. And so in my work, um, I feel like like God has been gracious to me and giving me these kinds of connections. So thank you. Um, like I said, I grew up in a transracial, transnational family in the sense that I'm transnational because I was born in Korea. So let's give you a little bit more terminology. I wasn't a Korean adoptee born here in the U.S. because there are those. However, I was raised in a transracial um, family. So my both of my parents were white, are white and they most of the space like all the spaces that I grew up in actually were um, predominantly white spaces. So with that being said, my childhood um, was met with a lot of, um, hi, I'm Brandy and I'm adopted to kind of explain why I knew I looked so different than my parents. Um, I have um, unpacked a lot of that through the years as to how best to create um, pride and not shame and kind of discomfort for myself. Um, however, yeah, as I grew up, it was um, my parents did a great job of still, to the best of their knowledge in the 80s, honoring um, my biological parents and giving weight to my Korean identity. Um, I attended Korean camps. I um, had other Korean adoptee friends and it was, um, they did the best that they could in the time that it was. And so, um, yeah, with that being said, they also exposed me to um, just kind of what it meant to be an adoptee. And um, we care, we care took for um, some of our family members and did some different kind of like unconventional, like fostering type of relationships um, kind of fostered within our family. So fast forward um, to probably to when I like began to become an adult and kind of identify who I was, it was very clear that it was always like innately in me to understand myself, right? And so when I went to college, I studied, um, sociology and social work. And a lot of those classes and a lot of the writing that I did during those classes were based around me, like kind of reframing my racial identity. Because I think one of the key things for adopt transracial adoptees is they, their identity is one within the confine, like the construct of a family, right? So I walk into Chipotle and I have my two white parents. So it's very clear that I'm adopted. However, when you go
go to college and you're on your own for the first time, you walk into a room and you're not tied to anyone else. That's right. And so it was very clear to me in the search even for colleges that I was very um, uncomfortable in trying to kind of figure out that um, part of my identity. And I remember um, being brought on for different scholarships and being sat with um, certain groups and probably un, in a way that wasn't um, kind to, I don't know that they would do that today, but I was like sat with the international students. And I remember feeling very um, out of place because I clearly was very American, however, was being placed with these other um, people. So all that to be said, it became kind of like an obsession. Um, and I, I know that my brain was trying to rework that for myself. Um, and so I read lots of books and wrote lots of papers and um, knew that at that point in time, the only kind of connection I had to that was adoption. So in my mind, um, the only way to kind of uh, amend this was to to be adopted, I guess, in some way. It was kind of like I needed to learn to be within um, my Korean American identity, but it was like stopped by um, the adoption part of myself. So yeah, so then, um, yeah, I took lots of classes and then I met my wonderful partner and husband um, and, he got an earful, I guess you would say, <laughs> um, of like who I am and what I'm about. And I think one of the things that was so comforting for me when it came to meeting him, and if I look back and reflect on the friends that I um, gained during that season, was the ability to have people that were empathetic and compassionate toward this part of myself that I was so working so hard to fix um, when, and I think one of the nicest things was that group of people ended up being very diverse. And um, there was, there was always this part of my identity that needed that filled. And my husband and partner, it was a missionary kid. And so it worked to our advantage in that um, we both kind of in two different ways grew up in looking different than where we lived. Totally. Um, yeah. The third culture kid experience. Exactly. Yes. Um, so it was, it was really nice in a big way. Um, and it's so nice being a part of that type of family because now that I'm a part of his family in the sense of, um, you know, just culture and yeah. all of that. Oh, it makes sense. I always, it's interesting because when I, re whenever I read third culture kid material, it just resonates with the Asian American experience, feeling like I don't quite fit in here, but I also don't quite fit in there and that kind of liminal in-between space, so. 
As I mentioned at the top of the show, this five-episode series is sponsored by Denver Seminary. For more than 70 years, Denver Seminary has prepared and sent thousands of graduates into the world. What I love is that Denver Seminary's community is represented by more than 50 denominations. It's uniquely known for demonstrating steadfast dedication to the unchanging foundations of biblical faith while being committed to charitable orthodoxy and deep relationships. Denver Seminary offers several fully accredited degree options to students with courses delivered either on campus, fully online, or through a blended delivery model. So this makes exemplary theological studies available to anyone and from anywhere. And I have loved being in class with students from around the world because it just enriches the study of the Bible and of theology. If you have considered at all getting us formal seminary education, I want to encourage you to check out the programs and the community at Denver Seminary. Visit denverseminary.edu slash Vivian for more information. Now, did you have, did you find Asian American friends in college or was it? Yeah. One of my best friends, um, she's half Chinese, half Indian. And so her and I really, we still keep up and, um, yeah, I really see the ways that all through the seasons of my life, um, there's always been this connection and this ability for me to have that. Um, I grew up in a very white Baptist church and still to this day, my um, best friend and I can re- reflect on the fact that we were the only two people of color in, in the youth group. And so um, there was a lot of hurt that happened in that, in those um yeah in those like settings yeah however I think the mercy of having each other is what has really kept us connected in a big way and um just the ability for us to outgrow some of the things that were grown into us yes that makes totally makes sense if do you remember some of those things that were kind of hurtful from your youth group days or um what happened in those settings I mean yeah, it's very, um, especially in the in the 90s, it was very um, like taboo or not taboo. Sorry, let me think about this again. Um, it was very common to kind of like loop in st- stories. Critical thinking wasn't really a part of the Christian community that I grew up in. And so it was very easy for um congregational members to kind of loop in my story as a kind of trophy for different things that I didn't even know my adoption kind of was connected to right I have I have vivid memories of being like of being told like aren't you glad you weren't aborted or aren't you glad that you're such a gift to your family and my parents never um that was never the narrative in my home right it was the narrative in our home. My home was that my parents always knew that they had wanted to adopt. And in that time, the city that they lived in, there was a lot of Korean adoptions going on. And so that's kind of how it came to be. Yeah. Um, and there were other moving pieces to that story, but that's their story. But all that to be said, I think my parents had no idea that these kinds of narratives were being told to me. And I had no sort of vocabulary to to relay the story to them back, right? And so um, 
it was through the connections with my best friend's mom that I was able to kind of watch her parent my best friend and see like, this is missing. This part is missing. You know, like my best friend is black. And so it was very clear for her mom um, when different things were spoken to her, how to respond. And I had no one to respond to those things. for. Right. And so it's been in an adulthood that I have been able to share with my parents um, kind of more of what that was like. Yeah. And I think that often is my pa- part of why my passion is so, um, so large for my kids that are adopted and for other adoptees that these kinds of conversations are happening in homes yeah. with parents before they're bombarded with these things that they don't have the language to unpack. So good. So good. And I think it is, I mean, Ideally, it would be the home environment where we would be able to unravel some of these, um, even the hurtful, especially the hurtful things, that there'd be an environment to, of safety to be able to talk through and process the emotions. Um, and what I've found with many of my adoptive friends, um, adoptee friends who were adopted, um, that there wasn't a, a space, that there wasn't even awareness on the part of the parents that these things were being said on on the in the playground or um, the hurtful things that were uh, being experienced, and I think that that's true too for um, communities of color who are you know f- kids who are growing up in predominantly white spaces that yeah. um, hurtful things happen and there's no place to process it. And uh, for um, an immigrant family like my parents immigrated from. China, Taiwan, actually, China, and then they actually twice immigrated. Um, But there wasn't, they didn't have that awareness at all growing up because they were majority culture. And so it didn't even dawn on them of what was happening to me and my little sister. Um, So, and then there's often a language barrier that can happen in that as well. So I totally hear what you're saying. So the, the, uh, to be able to soak in I think even as a kid to realize oh this is what it would be like to process some of that that makes a lot of sense so in your faith journey so growing up in a white Baptist church was there uh what was that like for you as far as just um you know the reality that God loves you made you a woman um of Korean descent like how did those pieces come together for you I can say that I have always been drawn um, to like spiritual things, right? Like if you meet my my brother, who it was not adopted, it's very clear that we're very different when it comes to like even just our natural approach to um, spiritual things. So I think for me, it was always um, I was I was always like pushing our family toward this connection and this belonging in in the church. So my church environment overall was was really healthy and very sweet in the sense of the family aspect, right? I think that that is like what was so important for me. Um I didn't I don't think until I have like been building my own family or my own racial identity have I realized how hard it was for me to be in predominantly white spaces spiritually. I think there was a lot of um, kind of tokenism for myself in terms of 
pictures for their websites or, um, you know, just different ways in which my voice was like used that wasn't necessarily healthy. Um, and then I think the, you know, the narrative around adoption created some sort of identity for me as I grew up that I don't know I wanted the weight to carry in the church. And so um, I, my parents, it was never something my parents were directly like even consulted about that it was that way. Wow. However, it was, it was. And then, you know, even within the church, those white kids were some of the kids that, you know, at that time were not equipped to understand my differences. And so instead, I, I've, I had some of my least favorite racial slurs spoken to me at youth group. Um, you know, it wasn't. And so I think that some of those memories are now tainted by me understanding it's not appropriate to call me. And, you know, I'm not even Japanese, so you really shouldn't call me like the slurs for Japanese people. Yeah, you know, like yeah. all of that I think is um, I've had to come out of it as an adult and see the whole picture, right? Like kids were equipped with the tools for that. And then also to validate that there was some of that, you know, racial, um, that some of these parents were racist yeah. and that that was coming out from their kids to me. And I had to, I've had to like accept and forgive and heal. Um, but also again, it is what fuels me to continue to put my kids in spaces and myself. I have to choose that for myself, even still to this day, choose for myself. Like I'm going to put myself in non-white spaces because I need this type of support yeah. and understanding. Yeah. I remember, um, we had um, one live event of some days here before the whole world shut down and there yes. were Three. Yeah, it was so beautiful. Oh, yeah. And we had three transracial adoptees that came from different states and they sat in the front row. And when I talked with the three of them, they were like, we have just never been in a room full of everyone who looks like us. And uh, yeah. just it was just it was so beautiful and so rich. And um, so that is really I mean, so much of some days here with representation matters. It's so important to me that the transracial adoptee story is centered and shared because that there's there's not a lot of spaces that it's happening in so um so yeah so double reason to have this conversation as well so thank you for being here brandy um i i would love to hear about you know your journey now as a mom you've done you've been a, a foster mom and you have adopted children yourself and um I would love to hear your um, your approach to uh, biological parents and just um, the things that you have done, the things that you've been trying, you've tried to be intentional about, as far as really honoring the um, the story of the first family. Yeah, um, I can say that openness is was always and will always be a priority in my home and in um, and now in my own story, right? I think even though I have a closed adoption personally, I am very open 
um, in my connection to my biology. I think that it it does me a disservice to even um, kind of make open and close so black and white, right? Because I can talk about my birth mother on my birthday and or my first mother. Um, and I can, she is like, even if relationship is not her choice right now, is very much alive in all the things that I do. Um, and I can't look in the mirror without thinking about her or thinking about the many other people that are connected to me. And I think for so long, that was a place of hurt and, and it still brings about grief, right? Um, and loss. However, it, it also, as I have built my own identity has become a place of pride and of um, I am Korean American and this is so rich and there's so much to it that is positive, right? Um, and so, yeah, so that is probably where I've started is I've had to start with myself, right? And being open with all of the collective stories that are within my family dynamics and being open with them within myself, right? So when it comes to my kids, we work really hard to have open as open as all parties feel are is appropriate for them, right? I'm a proponent of boundaries. And I also know that for my, my children's first parents, oftentimes there is grief and loss involved for them. And so I try my best to keep them updated. We text and um, we've celebrated holidays together. We go to visit them. They come to visit us. There's very much this... Um, open dialogue within our homes about them. Um, I am a proponent of putting one of my kids in front of a mirror and saying, you're so beautiful and you look like your birth mother. And that's, and I think that that brings about so much less of this, of what I struggled with for so long. Right. And that, uh, and that there can be in that moment at age six grief yeah. that I don't get to see her every day. Yeah. However, I can see her and celebrate her and I can allow that grief to be every day, not because it is every day internally, whether we like it or not, right? Um, my children's birth parents have, and for, or first parents have completely turned my own story inside out, right? I think you and I are both mothers and you know when, a mother is, you know, a mother's love, right? And so I think that there is this part of, I have so much admiration and, um, and just, just like honor to them, whatever, whatever walk hard human thing they may be walking through, there is still this part of me that I understand that a piece of them is very far, right? Yeah. And that I am parenting. And that to me is just the greatest tragedy and the greatest joy that I have experienced. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of birth parents are not like villains of the story. I think that that is what is so hard for me um, as I have become an adoptive parent is I've realized that oftentimes the way that these stories are told is that yeah. in that because, you know, being working within the foster care system, yes, there is this, you know, um, 
there has to have been some sort of conflict that lends itself for a child to be staying in my home, right? But we even in that moment, we can choose to villainize this person or we can choose to honor them, even in the struggle, right? And so I think that that is where compassion and empathy are so needed in these relationships. And I think so many times we lack them. We lack that. I think particularly because of my adoptee lens, I also have this, um, not only is it empathy and like compassion, but I also have this like, it's connection, right? And it is it is racial connection. It is um, biological connection. It's just like, I can look at pictures of my kids and I can see their parents' facial expressions. Yeah. And I just, I think that that's such a gift because I have now since becoming a biological parent been able to see my facial expressions mirrored back to me. Yeah. But for 30, like for 30 years, I had never seen that before. And so I remember the first time that my son like smiled at me and I was like, oh my gosh, like it just blows my mind, you know? And um, so, yeah, I, I, I see so much of a disservice that we do to the adoption triad when we choose to villainize anyone, right? Um, I think that all sides need the empathy and all sides are going to mess up. Like we're humans. However, what can we do to better um, equip people? Because the prospective parent is like the start of the start of the triad in a lot of ways because they have, I mean, it's not the start. I wouldn't, I'm not like, like where the journey kind of begins for a family is when two people decide they want to like be a family. And so I think there's a part of it where if we can best educate the the parents, then we can better move forward in these relationships in a healthy way. Um, so, yeah. That's so good. That's so beautiful. And there's grace realizing that all sides will mess up and you know, I, I think that, gosh, if we could internalize those truths of compassion and empathy and um, just taking time to know, to have proximity to know someone's story, um, yeah. that's just a much better way to navigate life, especially life today where everything feels so polarized and so black and white that there's a lot of nuance and uh there's a danger of a single story as that TED talk talks so brilliantly about, but um, I, I really appreciate um, your speaking from all the different angles. Um, I'm curious how you've mothered your kids with just the varying um, their just their relationships with each other and their own stories. Um, how how have you helped them to communicate? Um, how have you helped them to send to to find their their roots and their space? And yeah, how have how have you how have you done that? What are some of the things that you and your your husband have tried to do? Well, I think in our post twenty twenty, I think twenty twenty unearthed so much for us as a world, right? And so, especially as a nation. And I think it was a very clear time in my kids' lives that they began to build their own racial identities. 
I don't love the circumstances that that was all happening under, but I have so many stories now that we will probably retell as time moves forward of the way the world shut down and in a big way, the way our world, our internal worlds kind of lit up. Yeah. Um, it was my kids had opportunities and experienced walking in um, protests and understanding to the best of their developmental stage of life um, that there was racial upheaval in a big way. Um, and I think what's hard now is I see, you know, our communities cowling and turning inward because it's not as prevalent and in front of us. However, um, I have one distinct memory of my son. You know, we had, after George Floyd had been very active in our community, um, walking and just explaining to our kids what that's like, because we are within our family, we have um, a black son. And so the other two children are, um, so wait, let me backtrack for a second. So in my home, I am a Korean um, American. We also have a Mexican American, which is our daughter. And then we have um, two Korean American um, kids from my husband and I, like our biological children. And then we have our black son. So during 2020, it was like, it felt like it was just this, like in a very sad way, but also in a way where different things kept happening to different people groups. Yes. And I have a distinct memory of when after the shooting in Georgia, um, we went for a silent prayer walk. And I remember taking my kids and we were walking and it was only a mile, but my, our, my Korean son was like, mommy, our people are so quiet, you know, cause he had been so used to um, the other like kind of protests and rallies. And, um, and then, you know, in that moment afterward, it was, I think, pretty raw for our oldest being that this was for another sibling of hers and a different one, you know, and a different like set of people. Yeah. And so I think in, in to counter that and to be, you know, to create some sort of counter feeling to this very sad time, we spent a lot of time during the pandemic making food, reading books, um, connecting with people. We, during the pandemic, um, a woman in our community hosted a Mexican um, cooking class over Zoom for my daughter, like just trying our best to create um, joy instead of sorrow. Because I was beginning to be like, oh my gosh, like I need to shift this in some yeah. way um, and to give them these memories in a happy way. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess that's the best, those would be the ways that I, um, my husband and I try our best is to create cultural experiences for them and to never, um, to never like, to always say yes to all of them that involve that, right? To give them racial mirrors. One of the things that we try really hard is to continue to put them in, put all of us in communities that are rich and full of the expressions of all of our faces, right? And then through the media, like um, I exposing them to shows like 
and giving them clips. If I'm not going to let them watch the whole Black Panther movie, at least I can show them a couple of clips. Yeah. So different things like that and taking the time to do that and making it a priority has been huge for our, our family. I love that. I love that. I just think um, your, I guess your oldest your, is your daughter and for yes. her to have the wherewithal um, to grieve, you know, with her siblings, yeah. you know, this yeah. is, that's really powerful. And then to celebrate, which is so, yeah. so important because I think we, it's especially through what's been surfaced during these last several years, um, it can be so uh, demoralizing and depressing sometimes yeah. to see the state of our nation and the condition of some our hearts. Um, so yeah, cool. to take that time to celebrate is so, so good. Um, I would- Holidays is, e- mm. is an easy way to celebrate, right? Like I think Thanksgiving or, you know, Christmas we bring Korean food. Like it's just like, that's like a part of who we are. Yes. I think heaven is going to be an amazing potluck of sorts where we'll just have all the flavors and textures and tastes and it's going to be amazing. And I think just so many, so many of our cultural expression comes through food. And so I love that you would, you know, have your family celebrate all the different types and tastes. So I love that. That's so great. Well, I would love for you to share, um, any advice that you would give to um, white parents raising kids of Asian descent? Um, like what, for those who are listening, like what would your advice be from where you stand and what you've experienced and what you know, what would your advice be to them? Well, my first thing is always that like your child is going to have feelings about being transracially adopted, whether they, whether you think they do or they don't, um, they may express them very differently than the average person. But it's important to validate them and to be dialoguing with them and kind of scaffolding for them what that is like, even if you can't. Right? Um, would be my first piece of advice. My for Asian specific. Um, I think it's important to give white parents the understanding that we do fit the narrative of the model minority. So a lot of times in public settings, we are thought of as the mathematician or the scientist or, um, you know, that we're very clean or I don't or it, it can be an array of things, but those narratives are still being perpetuated in our cartoons and in our um, just media in general. And so I think it's super important to give your children belonging by allowing them to have the room to not meet that. There are some things that they will have because they're being raised by you. And I think that, and that shouldn't be something that create, like, I don't think it should be something that gives parents guilt, right? It should it, it shouldn't be met with guilt. It should just be identified because um, it's different. My experience was different than my friend who was raised was an immigrant from Korea. And that's okay. It just 
I think so many times we try to fit into these different boxes when in reality we can't without knowing where we're really coming from. That's so good. Yes. And then to um, the adoptee, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, to keep um, to keep pushing your own identity and to keep creating spaces to grieve and to have pride and joy and that it your expression of who you are is valid. I think so many times adoptees feel this counter worth because of the way that our stories are set up for us sometimes when our worth is in is you know it it's it's there and the time and energy that you put toward your worth in your racial identity in your personhood is only going to aid you in life it's not i think for so long i felt like it was something um that wasn't worth my time because i had so many other things to do when in reality my asian body comes with me everywhere I go. And so to have pride in that is actually an asset to me. And so, yeah, I just to take the time and to, to meet other adoptees and to have adoptee friends that you can easily communicate about these things that they only understand because of the nuanced experience that you are, that you have. That's so good. Brandy, this has been such a rich conversation and I know it's just the tip of the iceberg and I, just want to point people to the great work you've done because you've written extensively. You have um, been a resource to people um, as, you know, prospective parents who are looking to adopt um, for the adoptee. I mean, you really sit in such a unique space uh, where you your lived experience covers so many facets of the triad and I mean I just it's just been such joy to hear your story and I would love to just direct listeners to where they can find you and um, learn more about your your work as well as your photography too oh my goodness that's just so fun so just tell us everything where where we can find you and where to follow you on all the places in all the places yeah so I'm most active on Instagram um, you can find me at Brandy Ebersole. And I try my best to put all of my different writing and all of that on that um, kind of circuit. And I have a website also, if you're looking for um, any sort of like parent or church or um, even um, I do mentor a couple adoptee youth. Um, So all of that is at www.brandyappersole.com. And you can fill out a form. I'm happy to um, find time for us to connect. And yeah, our photography business is called Eversoul Photography. Um, so it's eversoulphotography.com. And yeah, I we do spend our t- our days enjoying doing that as well. So, but um, yeah, I'm so thankful for this time to be together and I look forward to um, meeting again. Oh, absolutely. And we will definitely continue the conversation. So thank you. I love the things that I've been reading on your Instagram page. Um, this month is Adoption Awareness Month and National Adoption Awareness Month. And you just had some really great insights. And 
it's just well worth to to follow to learn from you um so thank you so everyone go follow brandy and thank you so much for being on the show today of course someday is here is a production of ivy media podcast it's produced and edited by angie elkins and assistant editor is ashley minor show notes and graphics are by nikki ogden and the original music is by joseph patrick with passion net productions I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. To learn more about the Sundays Here community, check us out on the socials at Sundays Here Podcast or at Viv Mabuni on Instagram.